You're listening to Build for Impact, brought to you by MarketScale, with your host, Daniel Heward. Hello, everyone. This is Daniel Heward. Welcome again to another episode of Build for Impact. Today, I'm joined by a dear friend uh, who we've known for virtually forever. I tease you about that all the time, Katie. Katie Weeks, uh, who is the Managing Director of Communications and Development with the Institute for Market Transformation. She leads the organization's positioning, overseeing their communications development strategy. I don't know she's deeply involved with the guidance, governance, and strategic planning of the entity as well. Uh, I first met Katie. You know what? We'll actually jump straight into it um, and dialogue about it that way. So, Katie... Welcome. Thank you, Daniel. Excited to be here. Yeah. Um, so Build for Impact is really based around us having dialogues that are just kind of uh, candid and uh, in, in, in open about our thoughts on uh, what I've termed as my four pillars, which include sustainability, resiliency, uh, transparency, and wellness. And, and in that regard, I can go back... Uh, probably a little more than 10 years to when we first met and you were uh, either eco home or eco structure um, editor for those Hanleywood publications and already deeply engaged in sustainability. So let's, let's take a, a look at that and, and dialogue briefly about your uh, views on sustainability, Katie. Sure. So, um, yeah, I was trying to think back. I think we've been friends for many years and have been talking about the four pillars for those those many years along the way. When I was, I was thinking back, I think we probably discussed all of them when we first met years and years ago during the solar decathlon. But um, I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to work on sustainability for a number of years now. You met me when I was at Hanley Wood and was uh, running in a magazine at the time called EcoStructure, which focused on sustainability and commercial architecture. And then later on took on Eco Home as well, which was the residential component of sustainability in the residential realm for, for Hanley Wood. And Hanley Wood at the time had a, a lot of building and construction publications. So I've been I've been lucky enough to to be able to talk to people for a very long time, 10, 15 years, about uh, how the realm of sustainability has been growing and evolving in the architecture and design and construction realm and and, and what goes with it. Yeah, and, you know, really, uh, I guess I'll share with our audience some of the genealogy because, you know, green building rating systems haven't been around forever. Sustainability obviously has. And, and I do remember, you know, we first met at either Green Build or at one of the international builder shows uh, in Las Vegas. I, I do remember, you know, doing the award to uh, the, the National Association of Home Builders Award uh, for, the, for the home as well as a Lead for Homes Award for the homes you know, forever ago. And, you know, we were talking about how, you know, indoor, outdoor transition spaces, including outdoor living space, you know, we were sort of on the, on the fringe of starting to look at the discussions around many of the elements in 
living building challenge, you know, biophilia, you know, the, the, the beneficial aspects of the wellness around water and, and things of that nature, you know, you, you help bring a lot of that to the forefront. And I, I know that, you know, your work back with Hanley Wood and at that beginning of our relationship uh, really contributed to some of that. Your, your thoughts on, on that stuff that sort of stands out? Yeah, I mean, I hope I hope people felt that the publications were helpful. It's you know, it's been. Real, I was thinking a lot about it this morning about this evolution that I was. I've I've been lucky to be be part of along the way. And one of the big things that I find so fascinating now is um, I started out in design press, and I was I worked before I was at EcoStructure and EcoHome. I worked for a magazine called Contract Magazine, which was commercial interior design and architecture, and um, that's where I really got exposure to. Green, green building elements as they were coming and mostly as as lead as a rating system was getting uh, stood up and growing in awareness and adoption. Um, that was one of the things that we started to see become more of a conversation that we could ask people about. It gave people a guidepost to kind of point towards what, what might make up sustainable design. And then transitioning to ecostructure, where that was the thing that I focused on 100% of the time. Um, and now I'm at an organization where we're in the field. I had made the shift a few about six years ago, almost seven years ago, to um, move to an organization where I was doing less reporting on it and working, working a bit more hands-on as to what was going on. But it's been really interesting to me to see this, two, two evolutions that I think. One is that there's this evolution of uh, when people started talking about sustainable design as an entity, you know, green design with the quotation marks around it and lead and, and systems that were getting set up then um, certainly provided guideposts. But I, there was a while where it felt like people were, were shoehorning it into this thing like, oh, it's just a, you should treat that like a, a technology column. And, and it's just a side thing that you discuss as a standalone. And the evolution that we're seeing that, a lot of the strategies in green design are not standalone items. They are integral to just good design. And so it's been nice to see that um, become more of a mainstream conversation that people are having. I, at my organization now, IMT, I, I've long been fascinated with how people talk about sustainability and how they communicate about it. It's, a, it's the combination of my background of focusing on design and then also being a communications um, focused person, but it's been interesting to see how all of these benefits around sustainability, it just depends on the frame that you use. You can use it in a, in a green design frame, and I'm making the quotation marks with my hands, um, but there are also, you can frame it in terms of financial benefits and climate benefits and health benefits and uh, community benefits, and it's been interesting to see that conversation shifting over the last few years and becoming more robust so it doesn't feel so siloed. Um, that's one of the, the main evolutions that I've, that I've been um, really fascinated by over the past few years and the shifts as I've been involved in sustainability. And I know I mentioned another one. It's escaped me. I'm sure it'll pop back into my, into my head in a minute. So, you know, you, you touched down on benefits and really, I, I remember being at the um, International Living Futures Unfuture Conference with you for forever ago. And it was just when the uh, Bullet Center had, had, had opened and uh, we got a, a chance to, uh, to hang out and, and spend some time and actually go and do a tour of that building together, which was really fun. 
because we got to see not only sustainability applied, but as you mentioned, the the benefits that start to occur when we get a couple of these priorities addressed correctly. Um, your your thoughts on that visit to to the Bullet Center, Katie? I know I had a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I that one it still sticks out. That whole trip for me was um, just very memorable. And the you know I I used to love going to the Living Futures conference because it was a uh, such a passionate group of people that would that would gather every year and, and thinking cutting edge and people very devoted to to trying to push the boundaries and see what could be done next and then I would always come away thinking like okay how do we how do we get this more mainstream how do we get this adopted how do we get more people to be able to do this and I I just I still remember very distinctly walking through that building because it was um, so different at the time and to hear and you could feel it when you were in the space that it that it felt a little different. And I think that's the part that you see. You start to feel uh, very different when you can see the access to light and the the higher air quality. And you know, you start to hear the statistics about how uh, it can affect productivity or, or comfort, or even then on the business end, we talk about sometimes about like employee retention and how it can play into that. Or increasingly, as you have people looking at corporate values and, and vetting employers um, on that as well. So, so one of the things w that I've been working with in our company now through IMT, we're a nonprofit that works with real estate and government to try and drive market demand for better performing buildings. And one of the things we talk about with the real estate side is, is that um, there's environmental, social, and governance, ESG goals and commitments, and are people increasingly paying attention to what companies are doing there and and looking at that when they're when they're engaging with people and when they're deciding where they want to work and are they looking at the type of space they're going to? It's hard to say right now while we're all home during a pandemic <laughs> and not in office spaces, but I do think that raises some interesting discussions now about how we value the workplace or how we value the buildings outside of our homes and certainly like how we value our homes and how do they make us feel and are they operating efficiently or do we have good natural light? Do we feel safe in them? Those sorts of things. There's so many interesting discussions going on that I can trace back to these older site visits that we would do that are still in the back of my head when I go into spaces now today. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm going to double back really quickly on Bullet Center and just remember a dialogue that I had with Dennis Hayes and, and really it transitions us to the next pillar on resiliency. And, and Dennis said, you know, we don't want this building to only have a theoretical life of 25 years or 50 years. That would be, you know, in, in my opinion, not to paraphrase Dennis, was that that would be a ridiculous first cost waste if you were to do that. And sadly, that gets done so much. What Dennis said is, wouldn't it be awesome if we built a building that's intended to last 250 years? And certainly the Bullet Center, it, you know, uh, obviously glazing's not going to last forever. You're going to start seeing seal failure at some point in time down the future. It might be 25 years. It might be more. But really, the, the, the mindset that he put into place with, the, with that whole design and rollout of that facility was it was going to become part of the community culture, connected, and contributing. And, and I really like that big picture view of resiliency. Uh, and I know that you've been involved 
in a lot of uh, dialogue around the uh, inclusion of resiliency into what we do um, within green building. Katie, give us give us your thoughts on some of those things. Uh, you know where where we've succeeded in focus, and and maybe even where you think that we need to add some more focus. Sure. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, this question of resilience in what that means in a building. And, and I and not just resilience to, to withstand and survive the next natural disaster that's coming, but resilience in a more dynamic fashion, whether it's, is it, um, is the space flexible enough to withstand a, a much longer lifespan and that it has characteristics and, and, and qualities built into it that are desirable over the long run or that have flexibility in it that doesn't necessitate a new interior fit out every five to 10 years or, or um, that have these things that make it more resilient in that sense. It's almost not, I, I, the term we used to ask about sometimes with designers was how do you, how have you, how have you tried to future proof this building? And most often people think about that in terms of straight technology systems and how have I, how have I made this? So it's a bit more flexible, but it's a different way of thinking about that of, how how can it be future proof to be resilient for the community? And one of the things we're we're talking about a lot now and having questions about, especially in the in the scope of the pandemic that's going on, is like what is the role of a building in supporting a community and a community's resilience? Um, and what what could that look like? There's so many interesting things going on right now that are changing the way we think about buildings. Um, we've been watching how some of the commercial real estate companies are responding to the COVID pandemic in terms of, are they um, repurposing their space? So you hear about like hotel, there's been a number of articles. There's one in the New York Times a few months ago about hotels that are um, contracting out for room rentals so that uh, people who can't quarantine safely elsewhere can go there. Or for, I was reading about, a, I think it was the Intercontinental in New York that uh, healthcare providers were, it, it was working with the city to provide space for healthcare providers to be staying. And looking at how, um, how can these spaces be transformed to make the community more resilient during this disruption? Um, I think there's just so many different discussions going on right now that are that are evolving that concept of resiliency and not just thinking about bounce, bouncing back from oh, a static event, but this longer term concept of resilience that's multifaceted. I, I completely concur with the, with the stuff you shared, and you know I know that you're completely up to speed with what's going on in Canada. I really like how they've established that you have to have resiliency included in your design statements. And it's not just, we're going to make our building resilient. It's, it's what you've done, what you've considered, what changes you're anticipating and have prepared for. So it's, it's kind of future proof for potentially events, but also resilient in a manner that considers a, a bigger picture. And I really think it's great. No, I was just going to say, it's such an interesting concept to, to have that thought about the lifetime of the building built into the design process as well about um, not just what's being delivered when you hand off the building and it's done and how it's going to be used when you turn it over, but thinking through, it's almost like risk mitigation for the building discussions, not in terms of how will the components survive, but like how will the actual building live and, and what's been built in to see how it can support it, the community going forward. I think 
there's so much potential in those discussions. It's really, it's really something that's, that's interesting to watch. Yeah. I, I, I really concur on, on those, you know, those high points because the reality is we, we can't, you know, the sooner that we realize that, that focus on first costs is, is focus on first loss. Um, because, you know, something should have some, some permanence to it. And, and you should also be considering, uh, several things beyond just what's the cheapest paint I can put on the wall. And, you know, and that kind of leads me from that, you know, obviously I did work on resilience when I did work with the National Science Foundation. Um, and, you know, we looked at a whole bunch of those things. And, and, you know, some of that preparedness, I guess we'll touch down on one of the things that I had so much fun doing um, a, as a contributor with you was around the solar decathlon. And when we did the, uh, the you know, building in 2011 and 12 to finally get to 2013 when uh, the UNLV's Desert Soul House was, was seen in Irvine, California, and, and eventually became second uh, in, in the world that year. Uh, I was very proud of my 60 students, and, and I remember getting a call from, from you uh, congratulating me on the award because I was in Asia at the time and missed the very end of the judging. Um, and, and I was really grateful for that. It was really happy to, to hear that call. But, uh, you know, on that ability to, you know, mentor, share, and inform, you came up with a program to sort of interview and have a story on as many of the the uh, contestants who who wanted to participate, you know, share please share with with our listeners the, the combined benefits you felt happened as a result of that. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that I really enjoyed most about the whole time that I spent in publishing was being um, being given this this great platform that would allow us to foster discussions among people and share it and share those dialogues. I'm, I've always been a big fan, you know, I, I love communication. So I'm a big fan of bringing people together to talk about what, what people have learned and how can they make things, how can others then take away from that? Oh, there's a grain of an idea there. I think I could apply it to this other project. That's how you create the ripple effect. So I always loved profiling the winners of the solar decathlon and and similarly reporting on like the AIA coat top 10 projects every year and getting to hear what the unique challenges were in each project and, and how the the designers were creatively addressing them and and getting to present that and try and find ways to to foster dialogues whether it was just an article or were there were there Q&As that we could do to help people learn more about what they were doing and and it's kind of it kind of goes to your third pillar a little bit about transparency in a way and that being transparent about what what was in what was tell me about the project and and how how you met the creative brief but where did where did you have find areas to innovate a little bit more and getting to be create more of a transparent dialogue across the industry around that one i know when we talked a little while ago i was saying one of the one of my favorite columns to do when I was at EcoStructure was a column we called Flashback. And we would take an older project and go back to the design team. And sometimes it had been 10, 10 plus years and we'd go back and, and talk to them about 
well, knowing what you know now and, and knowing where you are now in your design practice, what would you have done differently and, and what's held up really well and what did you learn after the project? And I always found those to be such fun pieces to put together because it fosters this um, dialogue of learning of just how can you how can you grow on what's what's been done and what you've done and how can we share that with others? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things we do is how how's you know how do we actually the reason behind doing build for impact is how do we you know develop and and maintain positive benefit uh, and an impact that that uh, you know that obviously benefits others. And, and in that regard, you know, you transitioned us to transparency. Go ahead. I interrupted again. I was just going to say that the, the you, you need to be able to share to build for impact. It's that, that center of, of sharing knowledge with one another so that we can all have the biggest collective impact. And now increasingly at, at, at a, a faster, wider scale than we've had where there's a sense of urgency there as well. Yeah. And, and you know, I guess in this COVID time that we're in the midst of, or I should say pandemic time, um, you know, we're seeing everybody wants to try and do something education related, information related. And and that's the real good part. The, you know, the 600 emails a day is not the fun part, but, <laughs> but, but the, you know, the access to people genuinely wanting to contribute uh, is really, is really fun. And, and, you know, in that regard, the transparency pillar, uh, you know, I cover a whole bunch of stuff in there from the, you know, the stuff related to one of, one of the positions I hold uh, with Global Green Tag. And, and we, you know, developed a building rating certification for products that not only ensures the product complies with the needs to be uh, included within a lead or well project, we also do a health rate which is, you know, a definition to the end user that what they've selected or what has been selected for them uh, is, is safe and, in, in, you know, and healthy to be around. Um, and, you know, and then in the transparency world, we talk about equity, we talk about, uh, you know, ethics, really anything in a, in a big picture that relates to you being open in, in, in sharing and honest. And I, I know a lot of the work that you've done in, in including the stuff that you're doing right now with IMT has a big focus around transparency. So uh, hit any or all of those, those points. Yeah. I was going to say, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking back to like, you know, when, when the red list was rolled out for living, living building challenge and uh, the just scorecard and, thinking through how there's so many, part of it is just getting the information out there so people can make more informed choices. Um, and not just people who are the end user, but also thinking through uh, subcontractors on a project and how do you maintain that, that chain of dialogue so people involved in the project get more involved, get more looped into why you've specified certain, certain finishes or certain products. And, and I think that's where some of the rating systems and the and the certifications are helpful to help spark that dialogue as to no I chose this for a reason and, and informing people along the way one of the things that we're worked on we're working on a lot now is um, trying to get more information about building performance to the market so that building owners and tenants can make uh, 
smarter business decisions, factoring in, like we were talking earlier about beyond those first use costs, but also understanding, okay, how much is it going to cost me to operate this building, but also what kind of space am I going to be into beyond the first point of purchase? And one of the things that IMT has been working a lot on are, we work a lot with local governments on building performance policies and programs that, that can provide that information to the market. And I think there's some really interesting developments going on. One of the one of the things that we've worked most on over the past uh, 10, 15 years, 10 years or so is um, b- building benchmarking policies where there are policies that uh, encourage or in a number of cases, and I think it's up to about 35 jurisdictions, uh, require building owners to track their building energy use and report it to the city. And then it's shared out on public platforms so that people have access to information. And, you know, it's really interesting to think about it from the design and construction uh, process because I'm not sure how many firms actually go back and look down the road, going back to that idea of the flashback column of, hey, how is that space actually performing in terms of the materials holding up or the, the, in the in the context of the benchmarking policy specifically, how's it doing in terms of energy and water use? And that information is publicly available in a lot of jurisdictions now. And so there's this wealth of knowledge that, that that's there for people to play with and go back and maybe ask some questions about, oh, what worked, what didn't, how could we make it better? Um, we're, we're looking a lot at that element of transparency right now at IMT and how does it come across into the, into the real estate sector. Um, and it's just a really interesting discussion that's going on. Yeah, you know, you hit on something that's super important. You know, being a building performance practitioner, being a, a commissioning uh, provider, you know, both the, the building systems commissioning and building envelope commissioning, you, you know, we need that in place to assure that the owner gets what they paid for. But then we also need that in place to make sure that we're addressing not only just code issues, but compliance issues in a bigger picture uh, in, in the fact that, you know, we're seeing a move towards real estate where uh, you're including the, re, you know, the um, utility usage data for not only six months or a year, you know, people are asking for it over a longer span of time. And, and you know, when we've got systems created like portfolio manager, you know, from Energy Star, and it's so easy to, to participate in it and keep track of that stuff there, uh, you, you know, you've already ticked all the boxes for compliance. And, and really, the, the essence or the need to make those things public, I, I feel is essential. I, you know, I think that it's, it's like any other reporting that we should do. And I really applaud New York City for a lot of the moves they made in that regard to, you know, to move out uh, a whole bunch of moves around uh, benchmarking, which led them to, you know, their new, uh, you know, stuff that's codifying the, the requirements to hit minimum energy performance with, with buildings. Yeah, that's the the next step that's happening right now. And uh, these building performance standards that are being developed, they've been passed in four jurisdictions in the U.S. to date, but they're the next step forward is that they're setting minimum um, energy or carbon performance standards for buildings. And then there'll be a certain date by which the buildings have to comply. And it's affecting a wide swath of buildings. And it's a really exciting time right now because um, – one, it's recognizing that 
there are some ambitious carbon targets that we have to hit to ensure a stable future and that buildings play a significant role in meeting those targets. And so they're working through these programs, okay, how do we drive the change in the real estate industry? And we're working with governments on these development and the policies, but also with real estate and understanding like, what do you need to, to comply with this? And how do we help drive that forward? We recently, as an example, Washington DC, which is where I am, has a building performance standard as well. And we recently, uh, in, at the end of October, launched, uh, it's called the Building Innovation Hub. And it's basically a support center for the local real estate industry to help make connections and build dialogues in advance of, of, of the deadlines that will be coming that are, that are four, five, six years off in terms of compliance. But recognizing that the decisions being made today are going to affect that longer term target and goal and, and building performance. And so what can people be doing today? What are the discussions that they can be having? And even when they're making decisions right now about how do I just survive this pandemic if, I, if I'm a real estate owner and, and I'm at 30% occupancy compared to regular occupancy, how do I survive? How does my portfolio survive? The decisions that they're making today about their portfolio and, and how they're managing energy use, how they're addressing health, all of it's interconnected and can be harnessed as an opportunity. It's certainly a challenge right now, but it can also be an opportunity to make some decisions that just lay you up for a lot longer term success. And then again, going back, you've got the data that you can track to see, is this working? Is it not? Yeah. And, you know, I, I was really honored. I was, um, you know, the Green Build launch in 2016 in Los Angeles, I was at this this uh, luncheon meeting where we did the launch. You know, Rick Fedrizzi was there. Eric Garcetti actually rolled out their their move for uh, what they were going to do in Los Angeles and, and, you know, instilling one of these required benchmarking things and also a required um, energy performance look. And, and, you know, not to be penalized, you know, penalizing facilities that weren't good performers, they were looking at, you know, they looked to us as practitioners to start to to get out there and get more engaged and help. And I really see that with LEED, we've actually got to a point where we were hoping to affect the, the top 25% performing buildings. But now what we've done is sort of set the basis for the dialogue around moving all of it forward. And, and, you know, so instead of being at the top, we're bringing the floor up and making things more effective, more efficient, and, and you know, moving to our last pillar, wellness, uh, in, improving the, you know, the health outcomes of people by virtue of making sure that we address things like making sure that, you know, your, your work site was clean and that you protected the ductwork in the midst of construction. And, you know, you were looking to get minimally... Um, injurious products uh, in, in that construction and, and making sure you did material transparency so that you were, you know, uh, certainly aware of of what was going on there and what you had to do. And then, you know, even the, the building flush out um, so that you, you validated that that place was left in a more well, uh, pardon the pun, um, point of entry for the for the next users. So, you know, you did touch down on the interconnectedness and, and I'll add alignment to that. And, and you know, it really sort of brought wellness forward. And I know that you guys at IMT are doing a lot of stuff that 
basically, again, focuses on this interconnectedness and making sure alignment works in a positive way. So your thoughts on, on wellness? Yeah, I think one of the things, certainly the the health wellness of, of it's it's a high priority right now, right? Especially as people are trying to manage through the pandemic and what does it mean to make a building safe and healthy in its operations? And especially as they start thinking through hopefully next year into to, to reopening, if we're, you know, luckily see a, a vaccine come about and successfully distributed that would enable people to go back into the offices at a higher rate. Um thinking through what does it mean to have a health healthy space. Um, we've been having some discussions with some architects and designers and engineers recently over the last few weeks in the context, again, of, of DC and the Building Innovation Hub there, but talking to the local firms about what what are the what are the touch points right now if there's demand for increased outdoor air and, and higher air change rates in the building different uses of the ventilation system and how can you safely address that without blowing out your energy budget and without um, without compromising in other areas of the building. I think there's such interesting discussions going on about that right now and, and really critical ones. So it's, it's, it's fascinating again to listen to. There's one other element that I think is coming about that's that we're digging into now and, and is really um, really producing some fruitful discussions, but that's the idea of uh, wellness of the community. And so in the context of something like a building performance standard, one of the things that's in discussion in a lot of the jurisdictions that are either in the process of trying to uh, work through implementation of, an, of, of something that they've passed or they're thinking about developing a standard that they're looking to pass or just they're looking at building performance policies as a whole is how do they do it in a way that benefits all of the community and not just the class A office spaces? And so um, what, when you're, when you're designing a policy, can you do it in a thoughtful way that doesn't uh, penalize certain segments of the community or, or affordable housing properties more than others where, where the benefits are, are needed just as much as in a class A office space. And this idea of, um, community health and wellness and, and how the building building techniques can be can be spread out between different types of buildings and, and use of buildings I, I like the the uh, that you touched down on the community aspect and you know really our challenge to bring wellness into a property didn't you know it didn't draw a boundary around the perimeter of the property it was trying to include stuff indoors as well as outdoors, you know, promoting community gardens, promoting uh, small park spaces, sitting spaces, places where you've got some biophilia impact outdoors that uh, that the community could use as well. And, and I really like that inclusiveness of living building challenge projects uh, related to, to wellness and connection to nature because you couldn't obstruct somebody's access to, to a waterway or, or to nature when you build a living building challenge project and you know the 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 thought of having one you know at the edge of a city uh yet still connected to a waterfront or a park or something um you know seems to be like at the highest level that we could aspire to yeah and i think it goes back to some of the the earlier elements in lead of of the um the transit-oriented elements of that of is it accessible by mass transit? Can you can you bike to it? Can you 
provide different ways for people to access the site that's not driving in a car and parking there for the whole day? Um, does it bring the community in? It, it's so, so interesting, all the different strategies that you could deploy that create a more vibrant community across the board. I completely agreed. So, you know, we've, we've concurred on a whole bunch of stuff related to interconnectedness, alignment, ESGs, benefits of what we're doing. Uh, what, what would you like to share with our Build for Impact listeners uh, as, we, as we wrap up our discussion today? And the time has absolutely flown by. Thank you, Kate. <laughs> Thank you again for having me. This has been fun. It's always fun to, to catch up and chat. I think, um, I don't know. I think one of the things that I would leave with people, I guess, would be to think through how can we move farther and faster together. So, um, as you know, I have I have two little kids, and I think very much about their future and the need to make significant progress on green building and, and climate action, and and what can we do with our buildings to make them make a better world, and certainly want to leave a better world behind. And it, we are definitely in a, a critical time period to to take action and and really move a lot of the strategies that have been in the green building sphere and in the in the mainstream and um i think it's just there there's a there's i always like to try and frame things positively so while there is a sense of urgency and need to act really fast um at a very very wide scale i i hope people view that with a sense of optimism and opportunity and almost a, a positive challenge of what is the level of innovation that you personally can bring to your work to to make a difference in this realm and how can that be spread to others? Um, that's one of the things that I miss a little bit about leaving publishing is that ability of being able to to spread spread <laughs> spread the news and spread the discussion to others. And and why I appreciate uh, one your ability to connect throughout the industry and two having a platform like Build for Impact that that allows to foster those discussions. I think there is a lot of a lot of um, a lot of opportunity for innovation ahead that's that's necessary innovation and necessary necessary opportunity so what can what can we all be doing in our own little spheres to collectively make some significant advancement so i'm going to thank everybody for attending our discussion today and remember i'm going to re uh, paraphrase or quote what, what you said how can we move further and faster together um and i really I'm grateful that you've shared this time with, with me and our listeners, Katie. Um, it, you know, really our whole dialogue has been about what, what changes have we witnessed that, are, that have built impact and, and what changes are we looking at along the path that can continue that. Um, and, and with that, I thank everybody for listening. Please share comments and questions and uh, thoughts on other discussions and presentations for Build for Impact. See everybody again soon. Thank you. <laughs>